I read the Parsha and out pops something that I'm that I'm praying about already. You know what I mean? I mean, um, and I might have had a conversation with a friend about it. This is bothering me, and it's a topic that I'm tr- I'm struggling with and I'm praying with. And there in the Parsha, in the commentaries, is something about that very issue. And it makes me really feel like, you know, that the Torah is alive. It is pertinent to my life. We know that we see times where on a world scale that this happens. That exactly what's happening in the world is what's being talked about in the Torah in that Parsha that week. We see that. But sometimes in our own personal life, the same thing happens. Exactly what we're thinking about, what we're praying about, what we're struggling with will be in the Parsha. And so because you guys are, um, I've been studying with you now for a while. And I feel like we have developed this close relationship in the classes. I want us to share. I want you to share with me, and I, am, I feel um, very comfortable sharing with you about how the Parsha is affecting me personally. I want to hear how it's affecting you personally. If we grow like this, these are the kind of things that we think about, we pray about, we meditate on, that the Parsha itself, it's not just an academic thing, that it's a very, very real thing that's affecting and changing who we are. And it's not changing us into somebody else. It's changing us into who we really are. This is what's so beautiful about it. So the Parsha is, hi Sarah, starts in the 23rd chapter of Genesis. Now, we notice that, especially in the English, but also in the Hebrew, the way that the first verse is phrased is a little bit strange to us. Because if we were going to say Sarah lived, we would say Sarah lived 127 years. That's the way we would normally say that. But that's not the way the verse reads. Verse reads, the life of Sarah was was 100 years and 20 years and 7 years. Years of the life of Sarah. Even in the way that sentences are phrased, in the way that the words that are chosen even in the way that words are sometimes how they're spelled, even in the way that a letter is formed in the Torah, there's a message. And we'll get to some of that um, as we go along. But this verse, the rabbis say, has a very special message to us. And it's talking about Sarah's life being a flow from childhood to young adulthood to maturity it was a flow it was a very smooth flowing that she took the things the positive things from one phase of her life into the next so what they say what we're told is now everybody thinks of childhood as being innocent well of course childhood is innocent that's a normal thing but what is but what the rabbis say isn't the innocence of her childhood It's the beauty of her childhood. That she took the beauty of her childhood with her into adulthood. And she was innocent. She was pure. She was beautiful. 
as, an, as a young adult. And then she took this instance with her into her maturity. And we know that from the last Parsha, how Sarah had told Avraham, Hagar and Ishmael had to leave. And when we look at the verse here about her innocence, her beauty and her innocence, we realize that this came from not a vindictive spirit, but from an innocent spirit, from a place of knowing what the right thing was to do. Now we're going to see this um, brought out in a different way later on in the Parsha about truth and um, hesed, loving kindness, how this was brought into balance. And this was something that we really see with Sarah. Abraham was the personification of loving kindness in the world. But when we look at Sarah, who was also loving kindness because she was helping him with all of the all of the charity, all of the things that he did. Sarah was an equal partner to him and she was holding him up, she was lifting him up, she was supporting him. She was the one who was making the meals as opposed, like we said last week, as opposed to Lot's wife who was not anywhere helping him. Sarah was preparing the food. She was a full partner in everything that he did. So we could say that as much as Avraham was Hesed, he was loving kindness, so was Sarah. But Sarah had something else, something else that is also an attribute of godliness. That we, that yes, Abraham had it, but we see it more in Sarah. And that was her ability to look and see what the truth is. And have the ability to, even in loving kindness, to say, this is what is going on. This is the truth. Ishmael may not inherit with my son because it wasn't out of vindictiveness. She saw the danger. And so she said he had to go. So she had the ability in her innocence, in her, because she came from a place of innocence all of her life, but she was able to see things in truth and balance that with her chesed, which is a very difficult thing to do. So this is a subject right here from the very beginning of the Parsha that I want to talk about for a moment. Especially with people who are close to us. It's a difficult thing for us to do. To maintain the compassion that we have and be able to speak the truth. So I've been thinking about this because of things going on in my own life. I've been praying about this very subject all week and then here it was in the Parsha and you'll see it like I said presented in a different way later on in the Parsha where we actually speak of, of Hashem as being emet and chesed truth and loving kindness and it's uh, Eliezer that says this but this is a very difficult thing and so I was thinking about this this morning Sometimes people will say, well, I have to be in my truth. I've heard this from friends, you know. And many times people will say, in my truth. And they're thinking in the moment. Now when Hashem is 
when we think of Hashem's truth, we have to understand that what he's seeing is eternal. What Sarah was seeing with Ishmael would have been eternal if she had not put a stop to it. So she said, no, Ishmael may not inherit with my son. And to prevent the damage, and we're going to see at the end of the Parsha that Ishmael did do Shuvah. But if she had allowed him to stay in her home until he did Shuba, there could have been damage done to her son, and she knew it. And so she said, no, he can't stay. And we have to see this. Now sometimes, and this is where it calls for wisdom. And, you know, I want you to comment here. It does call for wisdom. If we have a situation, we have to make a, a judgment call. Okay, we see a situation. Are we going to say something because it is the right thing to do? Because it is, I mean, a hard truth. Because it is something that is going to be for the good of this other person? Or is it an, emo- an emotional um, cry from our own, for ourselves that given our day or so, we're going to be past that? You know, these are the kind of things that we have to think about. Are we going to, by having to be in our own truth, cause damage to this person? Or is it going to help this person? This is what we have to really consider. Because many times people will say, I have to be in my own truth. And I've heard this phrase from from friends. And it becomes a selfish thing. Because by insisting on doing that they sometimes will cause damage that they regret later. Say, oh I wish I hadn't said that. And so this is what we have to consider. Now when Hashem is the God of truth and the God of compassion we know that he has an eternal view. So we know that when he brings forth a truth, a very difficult truth, it's for our good. But sometimes if we decide, well, we have to decide. We have to understand. We have to make a judgment. Is that thing that we're calling truth really truth? Or is it ourselves having to push ourselves forward and have our own way? So this is a difficult this is a difficult struggle with this subject. What do you think? Have you, do you have some thoughts on this idea? Well, anyway, Sarah was able to connect with, yes, we fool ourselves sometimes. That's right. And sometimes we think that we're doing the right thing because we're going to be true to ourselves. And we cause damage. So we have to be careful of that, that we're not doing that. But on the other hand, sometimes we become 
doormats and that's not good either so this is why it's good for us to find the balance if we're only concerned with being nice and having compassion on other people then sometimes we can go too far the other way and we're never speaking truth because we're always afraid to say what is the truth so we have to find a balance to those two things that's a very great challenge for us in our lives but Sarah was a prophetess she heard from Hashem directly from Hashem just like Abraham did and she was one of the seven prophetesses mentioned in the Tanakh now I'm going to uh, just give you the list of what they, who they were that was Sarah Miriam Devorah um, Abigail, uh, Abigail Hannah Esther and I'm not thinking here Huldah Huldah uh, do you do you know who Huldah was? Okay, now Huldah is a very interesting person, and maybe we'll talk about her sometime. She's in the story of uh, Josiah the king when they were um, renovating the temple, and they found the book of the law, and she prophesied in the same time oh, she was a contemporary with Jeremiah <clears throat> and so she was the one that they took the book of the law to and gave the prophecy to the king so let's go on that was a lot to say about the first verse and Sarah died in Kiryat Arba which is in Hebron in the land of Canaan and Abraham drew near to mourn Sarah and to weep for her so Abraham came to Hebron. They had been in uh, Beersheba, and she went up to Kiryat Arba. What was she doing there by herself? Now the rabbis say that she went to Kiryat Arba because she had heard Abraham had gone to perform the Akedah, the sacrifice of, of Isaac and she had gone to Hebron and so he came he came to Hebron he had gone down to Beersheba again and then he came to Hebron and found her that she had passed on then Abraham rose up from the presence of his dead and spoke to the sons of Het as follows I am a stranger and an inhabitant with you grant me burial property so with you so that I may bury my dead out of my sight and the sons of Het answered Abraham letting him know saying hear us my lord you are one ennobled by God in our midst in the choicest of our sepulchres bury your dead none of us will want to withhold his sepulchre from you to bury your dead and Abraham arose and bowed before the council of the land of the sons of Het and he spoke with them as follows if it is truly your will that I should bury my dead out of my sight then hear me and apply on my half the half to Hephron Ephron son of Sohar 
that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he has, which is situated at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your midst, as the possession of a burial property. <coughs> now Ephron was sitting in the midst of the sons of Het, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Het, of all those who had come into the gate of the city as follows. No, my lord, hear me, the field I have given you, as for the cave that is in it, I have already given it to you. In the presence of the sons of my people, I have given it to you. Bury your dead. Abraham bowed down before the council of the land, but he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the council of the land as follows. Nevertheless, even if you would, hear me, I have already laid down the money for the field. Take it from me, and then I want to bury my dead there. And Ephron replied to Abraham, letting him know, saying, Hear me, my lord, a piece of land worth four hundred shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? Bury your dead. Now, Ephron, you notice, went quickly from, I give it to you, to four hundred shekels. So all of a sudden he's asking top dollar for this piece of property. He never intended to give it to Abraham. He's a double speaking guy. And Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out to Ephron the silver which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Ched. 400 shekels of silver, current money with the merchant. So the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field and the cave that was in it, all the trees that were in the field and in all the surrounding terrain, was established to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Het before all those who had, that had come into the gate of his city. Now we have to realize that the Torah never tells us anything that is unnecessary. The Torah goes into a lot of detail about this exchange of money for the property. This is like a bill of sale, eternal in the Torah. Now, there are three pieces of property that are recorded as being sold, actually four, but there are three pieces in the, in the Tanakh that we specifically talk about. There's a fourth piece, but we don't exactly know where it is. And that's the field uh, that Jeremiah bought. Now, there are two other places also that are spoken of, not quite in this much detail, but are spoken of as being bought for money in the Torah, in the Tanakh. And one is in Shechem, where um, Yosef is buried. That is another piece of property that was bought for money by Yaakov. And then the other one is the Temple Mount that was the threshing floor of the Jebusite. And this was bought by King David. It's recorded in Chronicles that he saw the angel on the threshing floor and he paid the, um, the Jebusite for this piece of property. Now, if you look at a map of Israel, you'll see that you have Shechem in the north, then you have Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, 
and then you have Hebron. It go, makes a straight line down the center of Israel. The straight down the line down the heartland that we call it the heartland of Israel. And these are three pieces of property in three specific areas that are recorded in the Tanakh as being bought with money. This is a very very important thing. Like I said, the Torah does not tell us anything that isn't necessary. So in case someday there would be people who would come along and say, this doesn't belong to you. Give us some proof it's that it's yours. You know, thousands of years later, literally, we have the proof in the Torah. It's literally the truth in the most eternal document that exists in the world. We have proof of ownership. But, of course, you have international courts and so on and so forth that do not recognize the validity of the Torah. But, this is one of the reasons, if not the reason, that the rabbis say, the sages say, that there was great detail given to this story. And we're going to see even more significant thing about this at the end of the Parsha. In that, who goes with uh, Isaac, with Yitzhak, to bury Avraham there in Machpelah, but Ishmael. And so, Ishmael is also acknowledging this sale is legitimate, that this was the place that the patriarchs of the people of Israel were to be buried. Ishmael acknowledged this. Is Ishmael buried there? No. Yitzhak is buried there. But yet, we have a contention from the Arabs that that, is, that, that piece of property, that cave, that field, all of this in Hebron, all of Hebron, belongs to them. It's ridiculous. So when we think about this, this is why, you know, I was listening to somebody last night on the, um, on the, one of the films, the videos that they have online, and they were talking about how all these wars that are fought over religious things. And yes, that is true. There have been a lot of wars fought for over religious things. But, What's really interesting about this whole issue of ownership is that the Torah, which is the foundational book of the three monotheistic religions, records this as being the burial place of the patriarchs of the people of Israel. And yet... <coughs> The other two religions, the other two peoples of the other two monotheistic religions, think that they have the right to argue with that. I mean, it's really kind of ridiculous. But anyway, I went on with that a little bit much. But we have to realize that, like I said about um, when I was talking about the eternal aspect and how it affects our lives, that all these parts of the Torah have this. And even something like this, talking about this council of men sitting at the gate of Hebron and the sale of this piece of property, Avraham, still has significance in our time. 
It's not just some dusty thing that has no bearing on anything in our lives. When you go to Machzela, you can go there. There's a mosque there now. But you can go there. And here is the burial place of our patriarchs, the matriarchs. I mean, it's very, very significant. So, like I said last week, each year during the reading of High Sarah, many people go to Hebron to to the synagogue part of the building for the reading of High Sarah in the place, and it's buried on top of the cave of Machpelah. It's very moving. So we're on the 19th verse. Only thereafter did Avraham bury his wife in the cave in the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Thus were the field and the cave in it established for Avraham as burial property by the sons of Het. Now there was something else very significant about this piece of property. Do <coughs> you remember last last week when we were talking about um, Abraham killing the calf for the three angels that came to visit him? Well, at that time the the calf ran away, and Abraham had to find he had to chase after the calf, and so Abraham. Um, chased after the calf and the calf ran into this field this is why Abraham knew that this was a very special place because he saw the light coming out of the cave and he smelled the smells of the garden of Eden this is in the Midrash he saw, saw the holiness of this place and knew that it was the gateway to the, to the next world and he knew through um, prophecy that this was the burial place of Adam and Eve, Hava. So when he entered the cave, carrying Sarah's coffin, Adam and Hava rose from their graves and wanted to leave. They were saying, we feel eternal shame on account of our sin. Now that you have come here, you aggrandize our shame by holding up your good deeds before our eyes. So Abraham told them, I take upon myself to pray on your behalf so that you will no longer be put to shame. Now, Abraham and Sarah, in their whole life, with all of the deeds that they had done, were actually doing a tikkun, a rectification for the sin of Adam and Hava. So it was very very fitting that this would also be the place for their burial in the same place as Adam and Hava were buried so it says that Hava still refused to lie down again because she was so ashamed she could not find proper rest because she had persuaded Adam to sin and caused the Shekhinah to depart from the world but the life of Sarah had brought the Shekhinah back to the world. In fact, the life of Sarah caused the Shekhinah to rest on her tent. It was so righteous. It was so pure. Whereas the, the sin that Hava had brought into the world caused impurity to come into the world. 
Sarah's life was so pure so holy that the Shekhinah came and actually rested on her tent but this was on behalf of Chava on behalf of the sin because the thing that had happened with that sin caused um, a blot on women all women and so Sarah's life that she would um, keep this purity she kept the family purity brought the Shrina back whereas Chava had caused the light light to go out of the world in a manner of speaking she caused darkness to come into the world this is the first person that we we read about in Midrash who lit candles for Shabbat was Sarah and we're told that Sarah's light that she would light for Shabbat lasted from Shabbat to Shabbat it did not go out from Erev Shabbat when she lit it until the next Erev Shabbat when it was time for her to light it continued the light continued and Hava also one of the things was that uh, that Hashem said you will bring children into the world with much pain and so on and as a um, like a symbol of this women are given to make bread and, and we need the bread in the same way as Hashem needs together the body of the child and then how the child is taken from the mother it's kind of an interesting idea you know Hashem needed together the, the dust of the earth to make Adam's body while well, he knits together the child within the mother and then when the child is born it's like taking apart from the mother uh, in a manner of speaking like pinching a part of her and it becomes an independent child well this is why Jewish women are given the mitzvah the um, deed of taking as the, after they knead together a certain amount of, of flour to make bread for Shabbat we take a pinch of it with a blessing and um, and that's the third mitzvah of women and so this was the specialness of the place that Abraham bought for the burial place of Sarah Sarah had to be a very very special soul to be the very first person after Adam and Hava to be the first person buried here it's like she initiated this for the patriarchs the, the burial place that she was the first one that was bought for her and in fact when we say the 31st proverb for the, the which is a virtuous woman on Shabbat it is supposed to be with remembering Sarah that she is a virtuous woman and it says oh, the virtuous woman bought a field and we say how did she buy a field she bought the field with her good deeds at the Machpelah the cave for the patriarchs was yes bought for 400 shekel to Ephron but the true price of Machpelah at the gate of eternity was the good deeds of Sarah that this was the true price of the burial place of the patriarchs at the gate to the next world so it's a very very special thing and to be able to even 
go there even now to the cave where they're buried is a very very special thing does anybody have a question at this point that was the 23rd chapter okay now the next thing is going to be about the marriage of Yitzhak and Rivka Rebecca Abraham had become old he had come through the days and God had blessed Abraham in everything and Abraham said to his servant the eldest of his house who ruled over all that he had place I beg you your hand beneath my thigh I will make you swear by God the God of heaven and earth that you will not take a wife for my son from among the daughters of the Canaanites in whose midst I dwell but you shall go into the con- my country to my kindred and take a wife for my son Yitzhak now first before we go any further I want us to discuss why it was that Abraham did not want Yitzhak to marry a Canaanite woman now sometimes we have a tendency because we, we think in terms of racism and bigotry and so on we don't see things in a Torah view and we could misunderstand this Abraham was not looking at people in the same way as a person would look at well their skin is darker than mine or they're just not as good or something like this we talked about in Parshat Bereshit and in Parshat Noah how Hashem did not want the lines of Cain and Seth to join because there was an impurity in the line of Cain that would corrupt the line of Seth and it happened it did happen well the Canaanites were the sons of of Ham and Ham himself of course was not cursed although he was known for being very sensual in his approach to life that was the first consideration for Ham and for those people who were born into his family that this was a challenge that they all had to overcome because it was something that was just in their lineage the Canaanites however were, were something else again because when Noah awoke and he realized what Ham had done he couldn't curse Ham because Ham was already blessed by Hashem Hashem blessed the sons of Noah and so he was already blessed so Noah actually cursed Ham's fourth son who was named Canaan Canaan now that's why Abraham said do not take a wife from the daughters of the Canaanites because he understood that his family was meant to be blessed by Hashem and the, and the Canaanites no matter how righteous the individuals might be the Canaanites as a people had been cursed 
and the curse line and the blessed line could not come together now the thing was that Abraham did have friends who were Canaanites Mamre, Eshkol and Anar were Canaanites and they had righteous daughters but Abraham understood that no matter that they had righteous children they had righteous daughters that the lineage itself had something amiss that there was going to be something wrong here and so he did not because he was in the very beginning of the founding of this people and he knew that Isaac was like the prince who was going to have all of the promise in him and so he says no you can't take one of these daughters now Eleazar the servant is also Canaanite and he also had a daughter and so he thought well how about my daughter and Abraham did not want to insult him he did not want to hurt him but because of the curse of Noah because that thing that Noah had said was going to be that was it it was eternal it was written in heaven his words were that um, that had that kind of impact that even though because we're talking about whole peoples here that Yitzhak was going to build a nation and so it had to be a, a certain woman who was coming from a blessed line even if her family were idolaters which we're going to see that Rivka's family Abraham's family were idolaters but they could repent of this and they could come into a purity because they didn't have this curse on top of that so we have to um, switch our thinking here and not get bogged down in um, not get bogged down in, in thinking about bigotry in the way that we do now having said all of that I'm going to jump ahead Yitzhak was the beginning of a line for a whole nation now later we see that Rahab uh, the, the woman who was the prostitute in Jericho she's an Amorite but yet she is a special person who merits to marry Joshua she married Yahushua and so this is kind of an exception there that she was somebody of her on her own that she had this great merit we see that there were pearls like in the Moab Ruth was this pearl this jewel that came out of Moab and so there were these special special exceptions like that so the servant Eliezer who was thinking about his daughter you know he's really thinking oh this would be a good match and I would really like it if my daughter could marry into this wonderful family and you can't blame him I mean he was attached to them and Abraham we're told by Midrash Abraham doesn't give Eliezer quite the credit that he should and I'm not talking about this but I'm talking about later he doesn't quite give him the credit that he should and he doesn't see the greatness in him so Eliezer and you think about this Eliezer later well I'll tell you in a little bit don't let me forget but I don't want to blow it the servant said to him 
Perhaps the woman will not follow me into this land. Shall I then have your son return to the land from which you came out? And Abraham said to him, Take heed that you do not bring my son back there. God, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth, who spoke concerning me and who swore to me as follows, To your seed will I give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman should not be willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath. Only do not bring my son back to that place. And we see later when Yaakov goes there, you know, but there's more. Because Yitzhak is a special case. Because Yitzhak was, because he was laid on the altar, he is he is in the category of a sacrifice and he can never ever leave the land of Israel never and the servant placed his hand beneath the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter thereupon the servant took ten camels from among the camels of his master and he went on foot and had all the best things of his master in his hand and so he arose and went to Aram Naharaim, to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when the women who draw the water go out. And he said, O God, God of my master Abraham, I pray thee, cause it to happen to me today, and show kindness to my master Abraham. Lo, I am standing here by the well of water, and the daughters of the townspeople come out to draw water. So let it come to pass that the girl to whom I will say, Please tilt your pitchers so I may take a drink. And she will say, Drink, and I will give your camels also. Let her be the one whom, you ha- whom thou hast appointed for thy servant Yitzhak. And by her I will know that thou hast shown kindness to my master. And he had hardly finished speaking when, lo, Rivka came out, who had been born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother. And she had a pitcher upon her shoulder. And the girl was exceedingly good to look upon, a virgin, and no man had yet approached her in a familiar way. She went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, Let me please take a little sip of water from your pitcher. She said, Drink, my lord. And she hurried and let down her pitcher upon her hand and gave him drink. When she had finished giving him drink, she said, I will draw for your camels also until they have finished drinking. And she hurried and emptied her pitcher into the watering trough, ran again to the well to draw and drew for all the camels. Now notice, she drew for all the camels to their full fill. And he had ten camels. This is, it. this is going to be more than ten pitchers of water because camels drink a lot. And she was giving them to their fill. The man kept gazing upon her in wonderment, holding his peace to know whether God had caused his journey to prosper or not. Only after the camels had finished drinking entirely did the man take a golden nose ring of half a shekel weight and two bracelets for her hands of ten shekels weight of gold 
and said, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me. Is there room in your father's house for us to stay overnight? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who bore him to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, There is also plenty of straw and fodder with us, and also a place to stay overnight. So he asked her these questions, Whose daughter are you? And she answered that first. And then she, he asked her, um, Is there room for us to stay overnight? And she answered that. She answered his questions in the order that they were asked. And the man bowed his head and prostrated himself before God. And he said, Blessed be God, the God of my master, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth from my master. I am still on my way, but God has already led me to the house of my master's brothers. Now notice here, this is what we were talking about earlier at the very beginning. He speaks of Hashem, of God, and he says here, let me just look here, blessed be Yudhe and then he says, Elohe of my master, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth. So this is another way that we see this, that this was a lesson that Eliezer learned in the house of Abraham. He learned this lesson of the balance between compassion of loving kindness and truth and this is going to be very important to him as he goes into the house of Betuel because Betuel is not a righteous man and his son Levon is also a very wicked man but and in order for him to be able to be a person who is um, a righteous loving uh, loving kind human being but at the same time having the wisdom and understanding of what is going on around him that he is not like pushover you know sometimes what we can we can be loving and kind and, and compassionate and we are naive where our innocence is really naivete rather than being balanced with truth this is the whole point that it's not going to be that we're naive but that it's balanced with truth and we're going to be able to, to maintain those two things together sometimes people like I said are truthful but they're hard with it they're you know they say no I'm going to be in truth and that's all that matters and they just run right over people and then other times people are saying no the most important thing is love and so they just lay down and let people just walk on them and neither one of those two extremes is correct. So this is the reason that we see Yerhevoche and Elohim together, hand in hand, over and over through the Tanakh, through the Torah. That we have to have a balance of these two things. That we have judgment and we have mercy together. And this is how Eliezer learned to walk in the world. And who did he learn it from? He learned it from Abraham and Sarah. And like I said, Sarah was very good at this because she wasn't fooled. Abraham was kind of fooled by people a little bit. You know, he was kind of fooled by Ishmael and Hagar. But Sarah saw exactly what was going on and she said no. And so here, this is a very important thing for Eliezer to know this because he's going into this house 
where these people are very crafty and they're very um, and, and they're wicked people and who we really see this combination come together in is Yaakov because Yaakov really has to do this later when he comes to the same house to Levon otherwise Levon would just chew him up and spit him out and this is what Levon kind of has in mind anyway you know he's going to try to kill him take his stuff you know he's acting like he's all friendly and everything but he's got an ulterior motive going on there and we're going to see that the girl ran and told her mother's household according to these events and Rivka had a brother whose name was Levon and Levon ran out to meet the man to the well and it came to pass when the nose ring and the bracelets were seen upon the hands of the sister and when he heard the words of the sister Rivka saying thus did the man speak to me that he came to the man and lo the latter was still standing by the camels at the well he kind of thought well he'll be walking up toward our house but no he was staying there he stood there before he would have an actual invitation Rivka said oh I will go see but he doesn't just assume anything he stays at the well he observes this kind of etiquette until he's properly invited and he said well come in you who are blessed by God why are you standing outside I've already cleared the house and made room for your camels now at first when they see him they think oh, this is Abraham because he's, he looks so grand he's dressed he has given Rivka these jewels and he looks rich and so they think ah oh, this is Abraham so the man came into the house and he unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels and water to wash the feet the feet of the men who were with him so you notice first that he does what he feeds the camels first and then what does he do he gives water and he actually himself washes the feet of the men who are, who are his companions with him so he takes care of his animals first and then he takes care of the men who are traveling with him and then it says in 33 food was set before him to eat so here and, and the last thing is he's, he is allowed to eat but he says no I'm on a mission he said I will not eat until I've spoken my words and he said speak he said I am the servant of Abraham so up until this time these all of uh, Rivka's family thought this was Abraham himself but no this is not Abraham this is Abraham's servant and they think oh wow if this is Abraham's servant can you imagine what Abraham must be like and he said I am Abraham's servant and God has blessed my master exceedingly so that he has become great he has given him sheep and cattle silver and gold men servants and maid servants camels and donkeys Sarah my, my master's wife bore my master a son when she was already grown old and to him he has given everything he has and my master made me swear as follows do not take for my son a wife from among the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell but you shall go to the house of my father 
and to my family and take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not want to follow me. And he said to me, God, before whom I have conducted myself, will send his angel with you and cause your journey to prosper, so that you will take a wife for my son from my family, in fact, from my father's house. Then you will be free of my oath when you will come to my family, and if they do not give her to you, you shall be free of my oath. And so I came to the well today, and I said, O God, God of my master Abraham, if now you would prosper the journey upon which I go, behold, I am standing here at the well of water, and let it be that the girl who comes to draw, to whom I will say, let me please drink a little water from your pitcher, and she will say to me, drink, and I will draw also for your camels, let her be the woman whom God has assigned for my master's son. So he's recounting all of this. And I had already hardly finished speaking thus in my heart, when lo, Rivka came out with her pitcher on her shoulder, and she went down to the well and drew. And I said to her, Let me please, drink, please. And she hurried and took down her pitcher and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels to drink also. And I asked her, and said, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Betuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore him. Then I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets upon her hands, and I bowed my head and prostrated myself before God, and blessed God, the God of my master, Abraham, who has led me on the true path to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son. And now, if you wish to deal in loving kindness and truth with my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, so that I may turn to the right or to the left. So he's being very straight with them. He's telling them exactly what happened, and he's saying, now, you know, let me know what your decision is, because I have to know. And Levon and Betuel answered and said, The matter has come forth from God. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Here is Rivka before you. Take her and go. Let her become the wife of your master's son, as God has spoken. Now they sound like they're really being so nice. This is a front. They're being so nice. And it came to pass that when the servant of Abraham heard the words, he flung himself to the ground before God, and the servant brought forth articles of silver and gold and raiment, and gave them to Rivka, and he gave delicious fruits to her brother and to her mother. Now, we look at this and we see that the things that he had given her initially, the nose ring and the bracelets were only, you know, they were just, they were almost like worthless compared to what he brings out later. Now he's bringing out the presents that are the actual um, betrothal gifts so he gives to her brother and to her mother and you notice that in the beginning here it says that her father it talks about her father had said the matter has come forth from God it's Levon and Betuel her father but suddenly you notice that it's only her brother and her mother. We're not seeing anything to do with her father at this point. 
Okay? And then um, he ate, and the men that were with him ate and drank and stayed overnight. And they rose, and he said, Send me away to my master. And her brother and her mother said, You notice her father's missing here? Let, it, let the girl stay with us for a year or ten months. After that she may go. Now, what has happened? What happened? Why are we not seeing anything about Bechuel anymore? For that answer, we have to go to the Midrash. Because all of a sudden, we're only seeing the father and the mother. We're not seeing any, I mean, the brother and the mother. Nothing about the father. The father is suddenly missing. What happened? The father was a, well, the brother also was wicked, but the father was a wicked man. And he conspired in his mind. Now this is all in the Midrash. That he was going to kill Eliezer. And then he was going to steal everything he had. And not give Rivka at all. So he poisoned the food that was given to Eliezer. So while Eliezer is going on and talking, you know, at great lengths, talking about everything that happened, you notice that they gave them food, gave him food, and he said, I will not eat until I've spoken my words. So the food is sitting there on the table. It's sitting there. Well, in, in that period of time when Eliezer is giving his speech and everything is going on, the angel that, that Hashem sent ahead of him to prepare the way, we read that first, switched the plates. And the poison plate was given to Betuel. And Bechuel ate that poison food and he died. So one of the reasons that the brother and the mother are saying, no, she has to stay, she has to stay, is because of the mourning period. It's because the father has died now. But why did he die? He died because he was judged as wicked. And he had tried to intervene. You notice later that Levon tries to intervene in what is the plan of Hashem to bring the nation of Israel into being. Rivka was destined to be the wife of Yitzhak. She was destined to be the second matriarch in the nation of Israel. Betuel, just like Levon later, tried to um, interfere in that for his own reasons. And so Levon, of course, is not killed. But Betuel is actually killed. So we see this, it's very subtle in the written scripture, that you only see her brother and her mother. Suddenly the father is no longer mentioned. No longer mentioned at all. And then he's saying, they're saying, no, let her stay, let her stay. And so then they said, we'll call the girl and ask her. They called Rivka and said to her, will you go with this man? And she replied, I will go. And they sent her away, their sister Rivka and her nurse, as well as the servant of Abraham and his men. And they blessed Rivka and said to her, Our sister, become the mother of thousands, of tens of thousands, and may your seed inherit the gate of those that hate them. Now, they actually did a disservice to Rivka because, because of this blessing, Hashem could not allow Rivka to bear children right away. She went for 20 years without having children because of this. 
because otherwise they would say, oh, the blessing of children to uh, Rivka and Yitzhak was because of us. No way. Hashem said no way was their blessing going to bring, be, uh, come to fruition because they're wicked and he doesn't want them congratulating themselves as being any part of building the house of Israel. And, is, and Rivka, and Rivka is known as the rose among the thorns because she was a very pure and very righteous girl. But yet she was raised in this very wicked, idolatrous family like Leah and Rachel were, all, were as well. They were very pure, righteous women, but they were raised in this very wicked family with this wicked father. <coughs> And Rivka and her maids arose, mounted their camels, and followed the man. And the servant took Rivka and went. And Yitzhak had come home after having gone to the well of the living one who sees me, for he lived in the land of the south. Now he went to the well that is called the living one who sees me. And who lived there? Do we remember how that well got its name? Do you remember? Now, when Hagar ran from Sarah, are you? Um, when Hagar ran from Sarah, she was visited by an angel, and she named the well at that time the Living One Who Sees Me. That's how the well got its name because this was the where the angel appeared to her. So Yitzhak went to this place, and he's coming back to um, back home when he gets when she sees him. And Yitzhak went out to meditate in the field at dusk, and lifted his hand, eyes, and lo, there were camels coming. So this verse actually belongs. The, the one about Yitzhak belongs to the next chapter and I'm going to tie that in in a minute now Yitzhak was in the field he was meditating in the field and we say that we have three times that we pray in a Jewish service the first is morning and the second is in the evening or the afternoon and the next one is nighttime. And these are tied, are, are connected with our patriarchs. We say the morning because Abraham rose early and he went to the mountain. And he called it the mountain. Moriah was the mountain. And so that was the mountain and the morning is connected to Abraham. Here we see Yitzhak went to the field to meditate. So he called it the field. And the afternoon prayers from this verse are connected to Yitzhak. And then Yaakov went and he said when he made the place that he laid down and he had the dream of the ladder, he called the place Betel and this was nighttime and this is all to do with Beit, um, the Harhabite, the Temple Mount and he called it Betel, the house of God. And it's so Yaakov is connected to the prayers that we say at night time but here is Yitzhak this is the verse where we get the afternoon prayers and that it is called the field connected with Yitzhak and so he saw the camels coming as he was 
as he was ending his afternoon prayers. And Rivka too lifted up her eyes and she saw Yitzhak and she let herself slip down from the camel. So she doesn't ride to him like a grand lady on top of a camel. And if you ever saw a person on a camel, I mean, it's, the person is going to be way high in the air because camels are very tall. So she doesn't want him to be looking up at her like this. And she just very, very automatically, not with premeditation, but very automatically slid down from the camel. And she said to the servant, Who is this man there who is walking through the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. And she took her veil and covered herself. You see such a modesty with Rivka that she doesn't want to see, be seen as a grandized, grand lady high up on this camel that he has to look up at. She slides down to the ground. And then she covers herself with her veil. And the servant told Yitzhak all the things that had, he had accomplished. And Yitzhak brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah. And he married Rivka and she became his wife and he loved her. And only then was Yitzhak comforted for his mother. So Rivka took the place of Sarah in that those things that Sarah had done, who she had instituted as a tikkun for the sin of Hava, of Eve, the lighting the candles, the taking the challah, and the uh, family purity that caused the Shekhinah to, to reside over her tent, were continued by Rivka, and the light was in the tent again from Erev Shabbat to Erev Shabbat for Rivka, and the dough was blessed where it was always fresh, always there, the bread was fresh from, from Shabbat to Shabbat, just like in the temple with the showbread, that the dough, that the bread was always fresh, and that the Shekhinah lived, dwelt over her tent. So she the reason that Yitzhak was comforted for his mother was also because of this that these blessings that Sarah had been able to bring into the world bring down into the world were continued through Rivka that she was an elevated soul she was able to merit the continuation of these blessings in the world so in the 25th chapter this is where I said we take the 60, 60, uh, 62nd verse from the chapter before Yitzhak came home after going, having gone to the well of the living one who sees me for he lived in the land of the south this verse tells us that Yitzhak brought to Avraham um, the next wife that he married and this next wife that he married, although we call her Keturah in, the, in this next chapter, that this is actually, says Abraham took another wife, her name was Keturah. And this was actually Hagar. Yitzhak went to the well of the living one who sees me and brought Hagar back to Abraham. And Hagar, after all of these years, had had a complete change of character. The name Keturah indicates that she had changed her whole being. Her whole character was different. 
because Keturah is reminiscent of the word Keturah, which is the word we use for incense, that her deeds had become sweet, like the Keturah, that we burn on the altar, and the smoke and the aroma goes up to heaven in the same way as prayers, that she merited to have this change of name because her life had changed so drastically. She had not remarried. She had kept herself away from other men. And so Yitzhak sees her merit. He sees her as being the proper person to be married to his father again. So she came and she married, Abraham married her. And she bore him Zimron, Yokshan, Medan, and Midian, and Yishbak, and Shua. Yokshan begat Sheba and Dadon, and the sons of Dadon were dwellers toward the plain, living in armed isolation and in groups of nations. The sons of Midian, Ephah and Ephor, Hanuk, Abida, and Eldaah, all these sons of Keturah, and Avraham gave all that he had to Itzhak. But to the concubines' children whom Avraham had, Avraham gave gifts and sent them away while he still lived. For Yitz from his son Yitzhak, eastward to the land of the east. And the, uh, and the rabbis talk about this as well. That, the, that from this we get that the religions of the east have their roots in um, Avraham that he gave them gifts and sent them to the east. And these were wisdoms that were actually wisdoms of, uh, they're called Shemot, the names, or the names of um, of Tumah, that he gave to them for power. He taught them things, wisdom things, but they were tended toward idolatry. And so he knew that he did not want them to be um, with Yitzhak, at this point he has the maturity and he has the understanding that Sarah had earlier on Abraham has this understanding now to realize that he loves these sons but they cannot be with Yitzhak that Yitzhak has a mission and these sons don't have a part of it they have a different mission in the world but it is not to share that with that heritage with Yitzhak And now these are the days and the years of the life of Abraham, which he lived. 100 years and 70 years and 5 years. So he lived 175 years. Abraham expired and died in a good old age, mature and satiated and was gathered to his people. Yitzhak and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of the Hittite Ephron son of Tahor, which is before Mamre, the field that Avraham had purchased from the sons of Het. There Avraham and his wife Sarah were buried. So notice this. Who buried Avraham? Yitzhak and Ishmael. And this indicates to us, and further on we're going to see more, indicates to us that Ishmael had an acceptance of the the decrees of God and acceptance of of Yitzhak 
being the one who was chosen for the covenant. And he had also, remember how in the last parsha it says Mitzahek, how he had mocked Yitzhak. And Sarah said, no, he has to go. Well, in that time that, that Ishmael was living apart from Abraham, we're told that Abraham periodically would go and visit him. And he saw, he saw Ishmael making changes, making changes. And Ishmael, we're told from this, um, the sages say, did tshuva. He did change his life. And he was worthy. I mean, he was, he had no anger and bitterness. He couldn't. Because he's able to come with Yitzhak. And together, it doesn't say the other sons, only these two, go and they bury their father at Machpelah. And he knows that he's burying his father by Sarah. Not by his mother, but by Sarah. And he has an acceptance of this. And it came to pass, after Abraham had died, that God blessed his son Yitzhak. And Yitzhak dwelt near the well of the living one who sees me. Now this is also interesting that he's going to dwell in the same vicinity as Keturah or Hagar. Now these are the descendants of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, had borne to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, which names remain with their descendants. Ishmael's firstborn, Nabayot, Kadar, Abdiel, and Mibsan, Mishma, Duma, and Masa, Hadad, and Tema, and Yatur, and Nafish, and Kedma. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are the names by their homesteads and strongholds. Twelve princes according to their tribes. Now these are the years of the life of Ishmael. Now here is one of the other reasons that we say that Ishmael did tshuva. That his lineage is named, Esau's lineage was also named. However, there was one difference. We don't read this. Now these are the years of the life of Ishmael. 100 years, 30 years, and 7 years. He expired and died and was gathered to his people. They dwelt from Havilah to Shur, that is before Mitzrayim, in the region as you go toward Ashur, before the face of all his brothers, did he settle. So we read about his death. We read about his years. It says these are the years of the life. And this is an indication that he had become a righteous man, that he had done tshuva. And we begin the whole Torah Parsha, we begin this Parsha in the same way as we talk about these are the years of Sarah. This is the life of Sarah, was 100 years, and 20 years, and 7 years. And at the very end of the Parsha, we read about the passing of Abraham, and then we read about the passing of Ishmael. And so it's like wrapping up the whole thing. Now we have to understand one thing. 
this is not in chronological order because in Toldot we're going to read about the birth of, of um, Yaakov and Esav and Abraham had not died yet Abraham was still contemporary with Yaakov and Esav and so we read about Abraham's passing yes at the end of High Sarah so that you read about Sarah's passing and you read about the, the um, purchase of Machpelah and then you read about Abraham's passing and they're both of them buried together and it's all together in one Parsha called High Sarah that this is called after the life of Sarah and even that we find a happy ending to the whole thing about Ishmael that, uh, that it doesn't end on a sour note yes Sarah sent him away but it doesn't end on a sour note that Ishmael did do tshuva and we read about his passing in the same type of phraseology in the same kind of um, of words as we read about the passing of Sarah and then the passing of Abraham that you read about Ishmael in the same way and so this is this is a really um it's a sweet thing. It's a sweet that the way that the Parsha ends, that you realize that no matter and in spite of how it looked in the last Parsha, that you're thinking, oh, that Ishmael. But no, he ends in a good way. And so, um, but you have to have, in order to understand that, you have to have the commentary from the, from the rabbis Otherwise, if you just read it straight from the written Torah, you might not quite understand that that's why it's put here. And that's what it's saying. So, now what I would like us to do, we have a long time left, because this was a kind of a short Parsha. Um, does anybody have any questions? writing so one of the the main things that I really um, am taking away from this Parsha this time it's something that I told you I struggled with is the idea of the balance between chesed and emet the loving kindness and truth to be able to bring these things together in my relationships with those people around me and so this is something that I want us to um, meditate on and to see what Hashem says to us you know and pray for is this balance of these two things in our lives so if bringing together what is it doing <clears throat> were nose rings just the style back then well 
it has to do with culture because I know that in um, in India also I noticed that when there would be a marriage um, a marriage parade or some kind of a celebration that the brides wore these kind of elaborate nose rings that I thought were kind of horrible but you know in our society it's it's kind of like a mark of rebellion when people wear nose rings but I think that the meaning of it was uh, completely different in Eastern so in Eastern society and so um, I think that a lot of times we have to understand the connotation of a certain thing in the society in which we live so if we're living in a society where a nose ring is kind of a rebellion and being wild and stuff like that, then it's probably not a good thing to do. But if you're living in a society where, and I mean there's nothing immodest or anything like that about a nose ring, but if you're living in a, in those days, it, it just it had a different meaning than it does now. And there are changes in modes that we have, mores that we have like that, that are, like I said, uh, the connotation that it has, the meaning that it has. It's like a haircut, a certain type of haircut. I know that um, there were kids in Israel who would wear these little rat tails is what they called it. The girls would have their hair cut short and they have a little rat tail in the back. And I just thought, well, I didn't think anything of it until somebody said, oh, well, that's, it's a statement of a rebellion. And then I just went, oh, well, <laughs> until I had been told that, I didn't, I didn't have the faintest idea. So I think that it's the same thing with a nose ring. I mean, it can be just a, a plain thing with, but evidently it was a style. It was a style then. And it is a style in the East. In India, not in the Far East, it's not, but in India, in um, the Arab countries, more in the, how do you say that? It's not the Far East, it's the Near East, the Middle East. It's in those countries, kind of the, um, the Arab kind of countries, and India, it's kind of it's a style in those countries. So, are you ready for us to do a meditation now? Okay. All right. So the meditation is on balance, on bringing together the compassion and truth bringing those two things together and in order to bring those two things together it would be in the center of your body in the heart is where truth and, and um, compassion come together is in the heart and the, the name of, of God that is associated with the, the heart is yud Hey bav Hey. So if you can meditate on yud heh vav and the, the request is balance, harmony, 
bringing together compassion and truth in our lives and being able to uh, relate to others with it. Are you ready? Okay. Okay, so we're going to do this for five minutes. Okay, that's five minutes. Um, do you have anything to share with us this evening? There was one more thing that I wanted to share with you about Eliezer. I always have to balance things in our house. Okay, <laughs> that's good. But the thing is, is to try to bring that balance into the relationship with other people. And I'm telling you, this is something I'm dealing with with myself. But I want that. I want to, to really get that. To really get an understanding of that. Um, and Eliezer did get an understanding of that I believe I think he really got it and we're told in Midrash that he was he had attained a righteousness that was beyond what Abraham gave him credit for and as a reward for that he was an, he was an Amorite and um, I mean a Canaanite and he was rewarded by Hashem by being one of the people who went alive into Gan Eden that he was not he did not die and we're told further that the guard at the at the entrance of Machpelah is forever and ever and always Eliezer this is another thing that is just remarkable that his faithfulness to Abraham was such that we're told that he is credited with being the guard at the gate of Machpelah. You can take that, you know, hold that loosely like we do Midrash. We don't take those things literally, but there's something about his character that merited to be connected always with Avraham. So, And this is what we say about individuals from nations that have a curse on them. The nations themselves can be cursed, but individuals do not have to be under that curse themselves. That they can rise above that and they can be extraordinary individuals. That they can be extraordinarily righteous 
And Eliezer is one of the examples of this, that he is from a cursed nation, but he himself is an extraordinarily righteous human being. And we say that in a present tense. We don't say that we don't say it in a past tense that he is ever righteous because he dwells on. I mean, he lives on. So I see you're writing some more. We have had to be away. That's why we are recording. Okay, um, I am going to talk to you about that in a minute. <laughs> I'm going to call you in a minute because I, I need to talk to you about that. Okay, so I'm going to... Um, oh, you have some more, Alan and Eileen? It's interesting too that we see so much about Sarah in the same parshas we talk so much about um, Eliezer and Rivka shows up for the first time in the same parsha that is named for Sarah. These things are also significant. We have studied the Quran in years past. The Hajj is said to be the place where Abraham and Ishmael built a place of worship. But later, after both of their deaths, it went bad. Does the Torah speak of this at all? Uh, no, it doesn't. Um, there are a lot of things in the Quran that are, like for instance, the Quran says that the uh, Akedah was actually Ishmael rather than Yitzhak that's it's a distortion of Torah uh, the, the Quran has quite a few distortions of Torah but as far as the Hajj I know what you're talking about is that um, the Kaaba in um, Mecca and it's not it, it's not mentioned in the Torah no the black stone, right, it's the Kaaba, right. And it isn't mentioned in the Torah. Um, and but the sons of Ishmael, the twelve tribes, the twelve princes of Ishmael are supposed to be the fathers of the Arabs. So this is this is actual. There are certain things about it. We don't have a lot of details about it. Maybe there's more in the um, the book of Jasher. I'll have to look. But um, mostly the Torah 
just stays with, and, and we don't really get a whole lot in the written Torah, but it stays with, with Israel. And so we don't get a lot of information about the other sons and what goes on, except from other books. So, and some of those, you know, the other books are very interesting, like the book of Jasher that talks about the other nations and what happened with them, the um, the sons of, of Asav and how they became Rome and so on. But, right. So you're wondering about the Kaaba? Well, you know, the thing is, um, there's a lot of things we, we see very sparing, the story here and so and it covers a lot of years where we're not told a lot of things so there is a possibility that there was there could be something to it there could be something to Abraham doing something with Ishmael in Arabia I mean there could but I don't know because before the rise of Islam from what I understand the Kaaba was filled with over 300 idols and then with the rise of Islam they did away with the idols and so I just can't see Avraham being associated with a building that would house idols that's why I just I'm not sure about that because he fought idolatry all you know for most of his life A lot of Islam is based on that point. The Prophet had to fix all that problem 600 years later. Oh, okay. Okay, all right. Well, I would say that there could be something to it but it's probably not exactly the way they say <laughs> because there are a lot of holes in their story too so anyway um, I know that this is a little bit early oh you have some more yeah okay I'm glad <laughs> yeah it's uh the Islam is something that it's a religion that I don't know a lot about. I